Welcome to Cognation. I'm Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. This week's guest is Tom Vanderbilt, a best-selling author and journalist. Uh, he's been a contributor to Rolling Stone, New York Times Magazine, Wired, and other magazines. Uh, and he is also probably best known for his book, Traffic, Why, the, Why We Drive the Way We Do, uh, which gave people insights into something they spend a lot of time doing, but they don't know a whole lot about. Tom managed to unearth so much about a seemingly mundane topic and present it in an accessible way. For me, to this day, it makes me more aware of the space that I'm in when I'm driving. Uh, your current book is Beginners, The Joy and Power of Lifelong Learning. And this is about getting back to the beginner's mind as you take on new and unfamiliar tasks as an adult. Uh, so you talk about something that you notice that people seem to think that learning is for kids, you know, as you go to science museums and you see adults um, bored sitting around uh, on their cell phones and the kids are there to learn, but the adults are there to stand around and just wait for them. Uh, so in your new book, you talk about a number of different skills that you learned. So you picked up a number of new skills uh, with the restriction that they weren't ones that you would necessarily use for work or they weren't uh, productive kinds of skills. So in, in the end, you picked out, uh, uh, let's see, it was chess, juggling, singing, uh, surfing, drawing, and even jewelry making. And I don't know if I missed any there. So all out of all these experiences, uh, maybe you want to talk a little bit about what some of the commonalities are uh, in starting from zero and uh, being an absolute beginner and trying to gain some competence? What what kinds of things are enjoyable? What things are annoying about the process? Is there anything you can generalize or take out of out of all these different experiences that you've had? Sure. And, and just to say, uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you both. And um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a process of being a beginner overall that I think is replicated across all of these things that I went through. And, and it's just a very common experience we, we've all probably gone through. Maybe, maybe some of us haven't gone through it as much in our later years as when we were younger. But, you know, this this what beginner's mind refers to is this concept from Zen Buddhism of, of trying to think again like a child to free your mind from preconception. And I mean, for someone like me, that that is a very difficult thing. I mean, as as a 50 year old to free my mind from preconception, I, I tend to have like many people do nowadays, an opinion about everything. And if you go on Twitter, you're almost expected to be an expert in everything. So for me, it was it was very liberating to wander into skill-based learning, which, you know, I, I could have an opinion about surfing, but it's not going to actually help me at all. I mean, this was a feeling of being completely unmoored, of, of really leaving my comfort zone and having to work through a number of, of novel problems. And I, I sort of found that, you know, process replicated through through all this. And, you know, I mean, one thing that, that stands out in my mind, in my memory, is, is just the notion of my head hurting. And I think, you know, we kind of mm. think about, the, the thing we sometimes forget about learning is that it, it can actually be painful and, and that there's, you know, I don't, I don't know what how to describe the exact mechanism going on there, but to be something like a a beginner reader, and there's a great example of this in uh, a book uh, called How We Learn by Stanislas uh, Dehane, mm -hmm. if I'm saying his name right. But, you know, a, a beginner reader, if you, if you ran a, a brain scan of that process, there would be all of these areas firing. 
and being activated and, and you know, your brain would you know, sort of be on, on fire. And, and there's a lot, huge amount of effort and activity involved there. And as you get better, all of that sort of quiets down and gets made automatic and, and trimmed, trimmed away. And, and the only way to sort of revisit that great burst of activity would be to do something, as he gives the example, you know, to make the letters really hard to read or to space them weirdly or to drop all the vowels. Then, then you'd be faced with this new puzzle. You'd sort of become a, be- a slight beginner again in the act of reading and you'd have to go through it all. So um, yeah, I just, my memory of a lot of these things is just, just my head hurting. And then, and then finally getting good at something, quieting, quieting that pain, but then it was time to try to take it to the next level. And then the sort of pain began all over again. So uh, well, that, that sounds, that be... you're really selling it here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but the good news is, is that, the learning curve. I mean, I, I'd like to, you know, correct this misconception a lot of people have when they say a steep learning curve. Uh, yes, that... and thank you for this because this is something that I did appreciate that you treated learning curves correctly in here. So yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, people think, and, and I, I myself thought this that oh, it means it's something difficult. If it's a steep learning curve, it's hard to climb that, hard to climb that curve of learning. But it actually, just refers to progress versus time. So if it's steep, you're actually making a lot of progress in a quick amount of time. And I, I found that. You know, for most of these things, that, that is one great thing about being a beginner is you do make huge amounts of progress in the beginning. Progress that seems not quite life-changing, but it def- definitely life-expanding, where you can go from being a not-something, a not-surfer, a not-snowboarder, a not-cellist, uh, to being you know just this, the very beginning of, of being that thing. And, and of course, then there will be plateaus that come, but it is sort of a, a very in- intoxicating uh, process and and combined with that sort of neural activation we were talking about that for me it just had me really feeling uh, sort of alive and and that is the sense of that beginner's mind that it just really feeling immersed in something and feeling energized and using my body and, and brain in new ways. I like okay, so you talked you mentioned uh, that some skills are becoming automatic and I think this is a great feature of of the process of going from a novice to an expert is um, you get an automaticity of a lot of the lower level kinds of things that you need to do. And, and I like the way that you talk about this in the book that, you know, at the, at the beginning, you're overwhelmed with the number of options that you have. And gradually, as you become an expert, and also some of those become some of those uh, parts of skill learning become automatic as you're learning, learning to play piano. You know, at first you're thinking very carefully about, I need to hit a C, I need to hit a B. And then after a while, you're, you know, those low level movements are largely automatic and your conscious thinking is moving on to something at a little bit of a higher level, how to balance, you know, how to think about this at a, at a higher level. So hmm. I, I, I'm, I, I like the description. So you're talking about how your mind is, you know, sort of, you've got this huge cognitive overload as you, as you have no idea what to do at first. Um, and then you're, your options are pared down and then it feels nicer that you, you know, you don't have as much to think about. So have you gotten used to this process of being overwhelmed and now you, um, um, you can manage it a little bit better and, and you, it seems as though you actually enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm not overwhelmed in, in the things that I was trying to do in the book, at least at, at the level I'm trying to do them. But I mean, just the other Day, I started a new process of learning with my daughter, which is indoor rock climbing. And uh, this is something that 
you know, is a physical challenge, but there's also a mental challenge there as well. You know, and I was looking at, you know, if anyone's not familiar with this genre, you know, it's an indoor climbing gym, there's a giant wall and there's all these little different accoutrements sort of nailed to the wall that, that are that are holds. And, uh, you know, you can try to muscle your way up in some way that's really inefficient, some of these routes, but there's also a more elegant way to do it, which is really sort of a three-dimensional puzzle to to sort of grab it the right way and, and put your feet in the right places. Again, there's this whole whole vast learning curve that, of course, the very the first few times I'm going up, I'm just my my body and brain are sort of both panicking, and I'm just trying to not not die. So, mm-hmm. uh, but then you know after after a few of those routes, I was getting a little bit better, starting to appreciate that, and and yeah, so I, I feel like, uh, but but you're right, yeah. I mean, it strikes me that what you were mentioning before about these lower level forms of thinking, one thing that unites the traffic book with this book is that you know, the process of being a beginner driver is, is very similar to some of what I was going through. And, and I remember mentioning in, in traffic, talking to some people who, you know, describing that process of being a beginner driver, that, you know, the, the driver looks at the hood of their car because they're, they're they're not really comfortable with this idea, this projectile moving in space. They're they're clinging to the idea of their own body. And they, they have yet to kind of incorporate that you know, with experience, you'll learn that looking down the road, looking as far down the road as possible to anticipate things is your best, is your best option. But in the beginning, you know, be, beginners pay so much attention to rules, rules that actually sometimes override what's actually happening in the environment. And there's some examples of this with, with AI uh, cars that are being developed, self-driving cars that, for example, if you're going down the highway at 55 miles an hour, and another car merges in front of you, some of the early AI, AI cars would you know, slam on the brakes regardless, even, even if the car was just doing that merge and they were a little closer to you than is comfortable, but a human driver would just gradually allow a little bit more space to enter. But the, for the computer, it was you know, obstacle detected, slam on brakes, and this you know, made, so that was sort of the beginner driver hmm. in, in software version. And so, you know, I, that's another process that begins to happen, which I find fascinating. And I quote the uh, chess grandmaster, Jonathan Rousen, that, that expertise means running out of unfamiliar mistakes. I like that quote too. I really, I really enjoyed that quote. Yeah. And I, I still have many you know, unfamiliar mistakes I'm making in, in my various processes. So I, I wouldn't you know, claim to be at that expert level, but, uh, but, but there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think that relates to this podcast too is you know we we talk about machine learning and um um you know the way that machines learn versus the way that people learn and i you had an interesting passage in your book where you talk about um the process of acquiring chess and you suggested that for a while the way that you were trying to do it is just by brute force like you know the way that a machine learning algorithm would do it that you just get you know you play, get a result, play, get a result, and eventually hope to sort of acquire this through uh, mm. these kinds of implicit processes where your daughter was was more uh, theory, I guess, would you say theory driven or sort of learned what kinds of right moves to make for good reasons. And I think this is insightful that there's a strong reason to believe that learning it in this rule-based and, and the way that your daughter's learning it is a much better way to, to learn it. Yeah, I mean, this is the the famous 
Anders Ericsson, Dul, you know, Dul, and other people, but he, he sort of made it most popular as well as Malcolm Gladwell, but the 10,000 hours rules of, of deliberate practice where, you know, not just playing a game, but playing a game and then analyzing it preferably with someone who's, you know, an expert or, or authority and really understanding either what went wrong when, when you won, when you lost or what went right when you, when you won. And, you know, that, that takes time and effort. And then my, my daughter sometimes would actually spend more time in the analytical process with her coach than the actual game had taken. And, you know, <laughs> this is one of the struggles of, of, of learning is that there's, you know, sort of the idea of, of fun, but then there's also this idea of, of getting better and, you know, which, which, uh, you know, well, whichever. This, <laughs> this was an interesting, I, I, I actually remember sitting next to Anders Ericsson at a conference once and he, cause he was under the impression that play or just sort of, you know, goofing around with something that wasn't of any value at all, that you should be doing this kind of more directed, focused kind of practice. And I didn't, I didn't have a great answer for that, but I, I did have the sense that play was certainly more valuable than, than that. Yeah, I, I would think so. I mean, particularly for, I mean, with, with certain things like like chess, I guess these are very, uh, you know, structured in, environments. Um, and these are not. I, I think it's uh, Robin Hargrave, if I have the name right, a psychologist who's who's quoted in the book Range by David Epstein, talking about these these wicked environments where things often change quite a bit. So something like surfing is a very dynamic environment the ocean is always changing waves are, are changing up till the very minute you catch one so this is where you know deliberate practice you know runs into certain limits where you can try to analyze but sometimes it's actually impossible to tell what went wrong so you really just have to sort of try and try over again and try different things and this brings me back to something i mentioned in the book quite a bit and, and featured this idea of the way infants learn and I went to NYU's Infant Action Laboratory to look at the process of, of mobility. And, you know, it's not like infants are doing deliberate practice. They are just playfully exploring rooms and environments to acquire this, this walking ability or, or crawling ability. And, you know, getting, they don't, they, they get a feedback in the form of a smile from, from their parents, but they, it's not like they get some sort of videotaped analysis of, of how they were walking or are doing some sort of drills. They are just playing with with no real goals in mind this is something that also surprises people that that infants don't necessarily walk more toward their parents or toward some attractive toy they just they just walk so within that you know which i, I think is a very playful process i mean what you know and and for them walking is learning there there's really you know they walk so they can actually learn more they can explore more environments so i think yeah and certain things chess is obviously a much more structured environment so that's where there's no mystery generally as to why one won or lost and it does it does reward very very close study and doing things like analyzing grandmaster games but people are people are human i mean there's a great endorphin rush that comes in playing 5 minute games of blitz chess and winning or losing and then if you lose you you quickly you know reload and try another one and that that's a very powerful thing that, you know, if you listen to, I, I spent a lot of time listening to a chess podcast and people on that podcast are always lamenting that they're not studying more, that they're just <laughs> playing, they're playing more. <laughs> um, Waste of time, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it probably depends a lot on the type of activity to, to your point. I mean, with, with babies and walking, walking is a thing that in some sense is pre-programmed into the brain that humans are predisposed to walking. 
And you talk about that about it in the book as well. It's just sort of this sort of uh, almost reflex towards walking that babies mm. are born with. And they're, you know, just having opportunity to express that is the way that that is quote unquote learned. It's, it's a, in some sense, a fundamentally different type of learning process than chess, which is it can only, re- some aspects of it can only be acquired through deliberate effort and, and practice because there's nothing inherent about the process of chess for a human. There, there's no drive to play chess per se. And you, you're not born with anything, uh, you know, pre-programmed about how to play chess. So I think, you know, depending on, yeah, the type of activity and the type of skill, you know, obviously there's going to be very different types of learning processes that take place yeah. there. That's, I think that's a good point. And one thing that I think this may relate to is, um, Tom, you brought up Alison Gopnik's work. Um, and I think of her book, The Scientist in the Crib, where she talks mm-hmm. about the way that um, kids are essentially like little scientists forming hypotheses and going around collecting data for inferences and and uh, things like that. And that maybe that's the second kind of learning that you're thinking about, Joe, where it's more... Uh, uh, data collection and less sort of innate programming for for these things. Yeah, and that re- thinks of another example from the the book I was just mentioning, uh, Stanislaus Tehain's book. He gives the example of of an infant uh, sitting in a, a high chair, dropping their spoon ten times in a row. And this yeah, you know, this frustrates parents mm. immensely. But you know, it's it's not that they can't hold it. It's that he makes the point that they're experimenting and and they're kind of running these hypotheses about you know gravity or, or physics that. You know, maybe in some collecting cases, as much data as they can. Yeah, yeah, which I, which I think is part of what was a part of my learning processes as well. You know, just learning how to fall while while surfing, or you know, learning what works in, in juggling, or or playing around with my voice and, and trying to get to. So yeah, it, it's a very it's a very good question. This whole thing, and I I think yeah, I make the point in the book that adults uh, humans just wouldn't have the time to perform that kind of brute force, unsupervised learning acquisition that something like DeepMind did to create their chess supercomputer. I mean, sure, I, where you can can't... turn in, you can turn in just millions of games in, in a short amount of time. You just couldn't process that as a human, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I, I mean, I would side with Erickson here that, that it is definitely a more efficient way to get better if, if that is your only goal. But I think even the most jaded, <laughs> Grandmaster still still enjoys. I mean, there's been a, a, a meme going around the chess world this week about uh, sort of a, a goofy, unconventional opening, which is nicknamed the Bong Cloud because you would only play it if you were actually stoned. It's a terrible opening, and Magnus Carlsen, the champion, played it in in a match against Hikaru, another Grandmaster, and they, they both just had a great laugh about it. So you know, even even there, even someone for... <laughs> at that serious level is still thinking about is still using play in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that's, it was another interesting aspect to some of the activities that you engaged in in the book, which is, to me, it seems like anyway, a lot of it is about connecting to other people through that process of learning. So whether it was with your daughter or the other people you were learning with, doing something that you're not good at and exposing yourself in that way is kind of a great way to you know, connect with other people. Absolutely. I mean, it's... You find general. My general experience was finding that, especially courses that were oriented toward beginners or, or that had a, a range of skill levels in whatever the activity was, that this was a group of of 
almost self-selecting people that were people that had that quality of intellectual humility that you know didn't necessarily think they already knew everything or were, were quite willing to expose their own failings and just put themselves out there and and make those mistakes and I you know was sort of struck that something like a choir is really what what educational theorists call you know community of practice where just this kind of you know the sum is greater than the, the individuals here and that not, not only am I you know sort of bonding over the experience with these people but I'm actually learning from them as it goes on and perhaps even more important than learning once I acquire a bit of knowledge myself suddenly a new person would enter the choir with that that sort of deer in the headlights look and which I could recognize and then I would actually give them a few tips and you know t- teaching is sort of an underappreciated part of that whole learning experience itself I mean that, that's a very powerful way to complete the cycle to then and I, and I think is invaluable in terms of you know consolidating your own knowledge uh, I think in the medical profession they see one do one teach one there's some sort mm-hmm. of yeah, yeah, yeah. cliche yeah, exactly. like that so yeah that's what <laughs> that's what I was you know trying to do yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about uh, with all these processes, what's going on in the brain. Rolf and I have studied neuroplasticity uh, a, a bit, and um, it's you know I was thinking a lot about the processes of neuroplasticity and how the brain changes with practice, and what the benefits of that might be for the person doing something new as a beginner. As I was reading the book, and you know, it really highlights a bunch of different aspects of that. But one of the things that that comes up is the idea of transferability. So mm. th- this notion that, okay, so if I learn something new, some sort of new cognitive skill, obviously I get better at the thing that I practice. That's not controversial in any way. It's, it's easily understood. But it also appears to be the case that when I try something new and learn something, get better at a cognitive task, that I actually get better at other things as well. But it's uh, confoundingly difficult to prove that that's the case uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, One of which is that people who, there's this confound between, as you say, there's a kind of person who go, takes on new t- skills and new tasks. And mm-hmm. they tend to get better at things because they're trying bunches of new things. They may already also have cognitive skills, uh, cognitive abilities that are, uh, you know, above where other people start. So you know, it's hard to tease these things apart. But you know, I'm a big believer in, in the power of transfer. I, I do believe that if you can learn to learn and that if you practice one thing, it actually helps you get better at other things because there's aspects of the thing that you're learning that transfer to these other skills. So I'm curious about your experience with that. If you, if you sensed any improvement in your ability to learn the next thing from from learning the past things. I mean, probably, but I'm I'm not sure if it's just, you know, how to describe it a a you know sort of motivational, or you know sort of a, a, a giving me a positive mindset. You know, I I don't know that there was anything in the actual methodology uh, because something like juggling balls is very different than let's say juggling a soccer ball where you use your feet uh, to sort of kick. So, so I, I, I mean, I guess one, one generally helps with a person's agility, which could then be transferred. Yeah. I guess my answer would be, I, I would think it, it, it kind of helps in, in the very broadest sense of, of something like agility, but, but 
some of the research I've seen suggests that skills are very specific skills are, are somewhat non-transferable because there's just various mechanisms going on there that are different. And I, I sort of had an experience of this myself. Uh, and I mentioned it, I think only in a footnote in the book, but I went down to Alabama to ride a very interesting bicycle with a guy named Destin Sandlin, who's, who hosts a YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day. But this bike was it's sort of a trick bike. You would turn the handlebars to the left and it would steer to the right. And I went down to Alabama as a very keen cyclist who's been riding a lot and, and takes pride in his ability to, you know, do things like ride no-handed and do wheelies and all these fun things. I, I thought in the back of my head, I'm going to just nail this thing in, in an afternoon. And I found it so utterly challenging and destabilizing. To, I mean, just actually sitting on the bicycle was actually problematic. It, it completely threw off my, uh, you know, vestibular system. And I, you know, I think what it, you know, the, what maybe one answer is, is I have so much you know, memory of, of an experience with a traditional bicycle, essentially. So it's overlearned, essentially. It's, it's exactly. Automatic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that he, he made the point that his kids had had an easier time with this bike than I, either he or I, he, he took six months to try to learn to ride this thing. His kids got it faster. Perhaps they had less experience. Regular bicycle riding was less overlearned. So, same, you know, same bike in essence, same skill, just differently programmed and and completely, you know, necessitating a whole different set of uh, you know responses and activities. So uh, that that to me was very uh, eye opening. But um, you also did choose a lot of a lot of skills that. Uh, seem fairly non-overlapping, and maybe that was intentional that you didn't choose things that were similar to each other. Yeah, I was trying to go for sort of a you know liberal arts kind of breadth right. or something. Yeah. But um, I mean, you know, and the thing that, and I'm still trying to come up with a great answer, and I, I get asked a lot, and I'd be curious on, on your take of this is that you know there's, you know, seems to be very proven things that happen to the brain when we try to learn a new skill, like like juggling. There is a plasticity change that does happen uh you know it's i've seen it incorrectly reported often that you know the brain expands when you when you when you when you learn a new skill which you know seems to be not true you're not actually adding volume but but then more of a a reorganization process yes but then after a few weeks that sort of you know you should you learn the thing and you shift to automatic behavior and, and it goes away and you know the question is you know did i did I actually have any sort of overall, what, was there any overall improvement? I'm, you know, am, I, am I sort of better in any way now than I was a week ago? Or, or am I just sort of shifting this stuff around? I mean, I, my instinct is that, you know, in the same way that exercise is good for the body, that it could be good to, to do these things and keep shifting that plasticity around while you still have it. But at the end of the day, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what, you know, the, the, the evidence seems elusive a little bit that juggling would, or any other skill would actually firmly help me in, in some kind of way. Yeah. I mean, that's, that makes sense? that's kind of what I was getting at there. It's like, mm. there's, there is a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that people who remain, who do act, so especially as you get older, this is something that comes up in the aging literature where people who stay engaged in cognitively demanding tasks as they get older tend to be better off cognitively in their old age. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a lot of literature on this. 
But again, it's it's a very difficult thing to study over the long term because is it the case that people who are better off as they get older were they already better off to start with? And is that why they engage with more cognitively demanding activities? Because they're they have more cognitive abilities to begin with, for example. You know, the, so the direction of causality is is challenging to to pick apart. But mm. th- there's also patterns in the data that suggest that it is the case that people who do things that challenge them as they get older, whether it be you know take dance classes or you know do crossword puzzles or you know engage in social activity, uh, are benefited in their cognition as they get older. Not that it prevents Alzheimer's disease, but but that they're able to solve cognitive problems more flexibly and efficiently as they mm-hmm. get older. And so this is the payoff for all of that. Uh, all of that had. <laughs> yeah, I guess this is what uh, what Denise Park and, and yes, colleagues exactly. found that you know, uh, learning something like digital photography does seem to increase performance on this more general cognitive uh, battery for, for you know, especially learning with in a group. So, you know, where that exactly comes from, I, I don't know. But um, one of the thing, I mean, one of the general skills that I might have anticipated might have improved would be multiple object tracking. So that's something that Mm -hmm. gets studied a lot is following lots of different objects, say, as they're moving around in the air or, you know, somewhere else. But it sounds as though the way that you learned juggling was less about keeping track of lots of objects in the air than it was about following a kind of algorithm. Yeah, I mean, you're you're always, you always have a general sort of peripheral awareness of where things are, but you're, you're trying not to fixate too much because, you know, as we talked about before, you need, you need to sort of automize, uh, automatize this and uh, you'll just sort of, it's like thinking about your steps as you're walking, you'll just sort of met, mess up that process. You need to, in, in trying to do juggling tricks that I've not yet mastered, like five balls, I'm, I think I have a higher awareness of those individual objects and how they're betraying me by not going where they, they want to. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, at this point, three ball juggling i i'm definitely not thinking about those as objects at all it's more just this kind of figure eight thing that i'm sketching in the air i think the only time I th- maybe i think about it is when one goes awry but but like the chess grandmaster i, I that's happened so many times i can usually uh, ad- adjust for that and and correct but uh, talking about but talking about transfer i you know there's also juggling pins and other objects and you know there's <laughs> There's not as much transfer there as I would like. Juggling pins is, is much harder for me than, than juggling balls. So, so yes, there's a general, you know, sort of maybe agility tracking thing that you pick up, but it's, it's still in some ways a, a new skill, which is frustrating. So I wonder if we could talk about the, let's see, you have a chapter where you, and I love this phrase, you talk about learning the skill of drawing as meditation with benefits. I wonder if you wanted to say something more about what you mean by the practice of drawing and what you experience when you're doing it. Sure. And, and, and I, I just preface this with someone who actually hasn't done meditation. So I'm just sort of guessing at what that process might feel like. But, you know, I, I just found that, especially for, for someone like many people these days who, who's, you know, quite aware of the fleeting passage of time and the sense of, of things being very busy and by, by always having multiple screens on my computer and, and constantly getting text messages and a very, you know, very divided, fragmented experience of life that you know, 
drawing just took me into this this deep place of focus just by necessity because I, I you know not being that skilled in it I really needed to, to spend a lot of time looking and and one of the things about drawing that you see in, in artists is that they make more glances between their paper and the object that you're drawing than, than beginners do so it really rewards close study obviously the, the entire act of drawing and to me that was just a, a, a zone where I, I lost track of any external uh, reality basically um, whether that be you know my, my hunger or the passage of time and and so the, these chunks of time would would pass where I was just completely in in the kind of cliched flow state mm-hmm. um, but you know when I say benefits at the end of it I had this this you know 2d representation of, of reality on my you know nice picture that I could go home with so I, I felt like I'd gone through some cleansing almost therapeutic experience at the same time I was I was actually performing some sort of some sort of function you know aesthetic or, or otherwise so I, I just found it a very you know almost like taking a, a trip but I was I was I didn't leave the room but I just you know was looking at things in an entirely uh, new way so that, that's kind of the sense I was trying to get at so the way so I love that so the way that I think about some of this stuff is if you're and I'm also at a I'm terrible at drawing, and I know exactly why, uh, because I have too much conceptual overlay of things. And, uh, you know, as someone who studies visual perception, I think of this as, um, you know, basic visual information comes into the eye, goes to the back of the head, and sort of flows forward. The basic process is you start out with low-level features. So in early visual processing, you've just got these lines and um primitive basic features. And then as you move forward, you're adding assumptions about the world, you know, assuming that things are generally circular or, you know, right angled and, um, and then, and then moving forward, you're getting more conceptual. You're adding, um, you know, assumptions about what objects things are, uh, and things like that. So, you know, in vision, you can, you can notice both of these things. You can notice high-level vision. You can look at something and and see it as a chair or a desk or whatever it is. But you can also notice the low-level features too. So you can sort of zoom in and out. So you can see those individual literal uh, lines and bits. And then you're operating really more on sort of a literal um, early representation of things. And one thing I wanted to mention to you is that there's a there's a great research study from a few years ago. I don't know if you came across this, but uh, if you wanted a shortcut to drawing, there's a researcher, Alan Snyder, uh, who's an Australian researcher, who uh, found that by applying TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, just a Mm -hmm. magnetic zap to your left hemisphere, he can actually induce better drawing. You're essentially deactivating, so you're deactivating some of that conceptual stuff and you can access some of your more literal mind a little bit. So the process that you're going through could even potentially be shortcut a little bit. I don't know if you're up for that to just to improve drawing. And I think it's probably more fun as a meditative experience than being zapped in the head, but I thought that might be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, that's an interesting, interesting. You mentioned TMS because it was one of those things along with certain, um, you know, pharmaceuticals that I sort of didn't go, in, you know, I'm very curious about some of the work that's been done there. I, I didn't want to go there because I, I, my whole point was to try to do things a little more slowly and deliberately and, you know, kind of avoid some of these shortcuts, but I'm, I'm very, very intrigued. And yeah, I mean, just, just since you bring it up, I mean, I think, you know, 
as someone who did a little bit of work with with visual illusions in in traffic with with you know like uh, Simons and and Chabri and Invisible Gorilla and all that mm-hmm. stuff, and and it made sense to me that in a in an environment like driving where you're moving at this you know artificially high speed and that that things would the world might look a little strange there, but it, it was another thing entirely to be you know sitting in a room and be trying to draw this chair and. And having my my result be so wrong in sort of a in sort of a you know measurement way where where the, I you know the instructor said you know oh you, actually there's uh, the back of the chair is as high as the seat is wide and to my to my actual eye it did not appear that way at all and the chair is two feet away from me I'm not moving yet still I I can't grasp this fundamental reality and just, just you know sort of raises that that old that idea of you know uh, how much of the world is essentially, you know, a construct that we're, we're creating with a predictive brain and all sorts of other mechanisms. But, um, and, and that, yeah, I felt like sometimes I was, I was like Keanu Reeves in the matrix, you know, popping the blue pill or is it the red pill that suddenly allows him to see the world as it, as it quote unquote really is. Yeah. I think the, the idea of the predictive brain that you bring up ties a lot of these things together because it's a non-intuitive fact about the way that the brain works that a lot of the time when you're observing say a natural scene so like visually you're you're looking at the outdoors for example sort of natural scene that you've experienced a lot in the past and is also consistent with the environment in which the species evolved the amount of brain activity that you're exerting is actually relatively low because the expectation of what you're experiencing from a top-down perspective matches your bottom-up input experience. So the actual amount of exertion that the brain needs to, our metaphors of exercise kind of creep in here, but you know the, the amount of activity that, that the brain needs to, to utilize to process that information accurately is low uh, because the prior probability matches what you're experiencing in the moment and being in these situations where you're, where you're putting yourself in a, a place where you don't have a lot of prior experience or your prior experience doesn't match the inputs that you're getting. It actually causes the brain to need to operate in a different way. It's an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it's kind of gets back to this idea of it's different is it good? Does it, does it matter from a positive benefit <laughs> perspective, but it definitely is different. Yeah. Which, which brings us back to the, the backwards bicycle and, and you, yeah, the, the input was definitely not matching my, my prediction of how a bicycle should behave. So you would it's, it's sort of, you know, no one's done this study, but I'd be kind of curious to know what mechanisms are at work in, in, in trying to learn it. Is it the same brain areas that would be involved in, in a regular bike riding process, just somehow with a different program overlaid? Is it, is it, is it an unlearning if that's an actual thing that exists? Uh, I, I'm not sure, but <laughs> there must be some unlearning going on because it seems as though you, you were kind of jolted into awareness of what it is that you were doing that you're normally so it's normally fluid and happens so easily, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 made it that much more difficult to learn because there was something I already knew that was getting in the way that had to be sort of you not only you not only had to learn the new thing, you had to cancel the old thing, which 
you know, metaphorically, I wonder if that's something that challenges older learners in, in general in that, you know, as I think I mentioned in the book, something like language, you know, we, I've had five decades of being exposed to, to English and, the, and speaking English and the way in my brain is sort of tuned to that grammar. So that would make picking up something like Mandarin Chinese almost, you know, not impossible, but a great task for me because I've because of the depth of your uh, use of English, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, exactly. You have so many prior experiences with you know these uh, examples in English, and the amount of your expectation about what you're going to be hearing is so ingrained there. It kind of gets back to also to the idea of like how much of learning has to do with learning from specific examples versus the uh, sort of deliberate practice. And one of the things that yeah, that, that comes up there is that the amount of learning that happens in a lifetime is just so enormous that it's, it is inevitable in some sense that your the older brain will be somewhat overwhelmed by all the things that it has encountered and learned over the years. You have to imagine that would have something to do with why it's harder to learn new things as you get older. But there is also yeah, like, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, and then just the, the additional, let's say other pressures that enter into it, such as, I mean, the very notion of pressure that adults put a lot, you know, higher expectation on their own performance, I, I think in, in trying to learn something new than, than a child does. It's, it's, it's not a nice low pressure environment. And we might not have the same supportive network around us. We, we don't have the sheer amount of time available. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, it just strikes me there are, are so many things that that challenge the uh, the older learner. One one of which also is that you know, for me and other people doing things like this, these, these are hobbies I'm trying to essentially pick up. There, it's not a life or death skill like or, or a crucial skill like language or walking that that infants you know really want to do that. And and like you say, it, it's already programmed there uh, as well. But I mean. You know, it's not vital to my life that I learn how to sing. So it, it takes that much more sort of, you know, motivation and, and external uh, pressure in, in a sense. Well, I'm mindful of our time now, and, and maybe we have time for a, another couple of questions here. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I wanted to ask is, okay, so you've been doing this for a few years, and it seems like it's ingrained itself in you. Um, does beginning ever get old? <laughs> <laughs> that's a do you, do you get do time? <laughs> maybe it's an odd question, but maybe you see what I mean. It's it's a new question, but but a good one. I mean, I think you know. It, I mean, maybe another way to think about it is is that I, I do also enjoy mastery. I mean, that's right. I, that's I, the alternative. That's what I'm thinking. Like, would you rather yeah, or, be or, in the or, mastery or, mode or the beginner uh, or a beginner mode? I mean, I guess it's nice to have have both, if only for for the perspective. And of course, you know, you have to start. You have to start somewhere. You have to be a beginner. You do, you don't just graduate to mastery. So, uh, and time is is limited. If we're if we're going to take, if we're going to take even ten thousand hours as a very rough benchmark, or or five thousand hours, even. I mean, who who would have that much time to acquire that many more skills? So, I mean, it's a nice refuge to to be able to go back to something like oh let's let's say 
cycling where I, I you know, road cycling where I can, I can do that very comfortably and, and feel and handle unfamiliar mistakes and all, all that sort of thing. But, um, does it get old? I, I, I hasn't for me yet. I mean, well, I, I, what does get old though is, is being of course stuck in a certain skill and really not making progress. And that's where the motivation can, can falter. And then you have to kind of make a decision. What is this for? How, how far do I want to take this? Am I happy with this level of, of, of achievement? Um, but you know, there, I, I think anything, uh, the English writer G.K. Chesterton had this wonderful quote: um, "Anything worth doing is worth doing badly." So <laughs> there, there are many things that I would love to take a crack at, um, maybe even just once or twice, just to kind of get it, get a sense for what they're like. Because you know, as, as someone who loves reading, I mean, most of these things really you know can't be experienced until you actually do them. In the same way that you know, I make the point in the book that the procedural and declarative knowledge are, are, are two entirely different things, mm-hmm. two different parts of the brain or two different activities. And you can only read about something up to a certain point before you, you just have to go out and, and try to do it to, to, to fully understand what that person is going through. So another thing you mention in the book is, um, and I forget if you mentioned this directly, but that, um, so there's a tendency for people who know a little bit about a, a skill to overestimate the degree to which they they know about it, and this is referred to in general as the Dunning Kruger effect. Sound, I mean, you, you've thought about this; you're aware of it. Um, do you ever feel the Dunning Kruger effect sneaking in if you've um, if you've acquired a little bit of mastery of something? I'm sure it has. I'm trying to come up with an example here, but I mean, the, the, it's interesting that it does show out in the data in all sorts of interesting ways about you know surgeons making more errors after you know a few months of experience versus day one, or I, I'm sure. I haven't done the study, but perhaps in the driving literature that, that in fact, I, I do vaguely remember something about this, you know, the, the most beginner drivers are actually pretty good. It's that, that, you know, after a year of experience where you're still quite young, but you feel you have, you have the experience. So that sets up this sort of uh, dangerous situation. Um, I've probably gotten a bit into trouble with something like surfing. If, if the waves are, bigger than I'm used to. Um, it, it's kind of a nonlinear thing that happens in the ocean where, you know, going from three to five feet, it's, it, it's, it's not just a two foot wave increase. Mm-hmm. It's more like, you know, a five X increase. I mean, in terms of, of the scale of difficulty there. So if you overestimate five, your skill there, you could be in some serious trouble. Yes. <laughs> which I, which I have been. You so. can end up in the washing machine. Um, something like like singing, you're not. It's not. You, you'll you'll just embarrass yourself, and you you'll you'll make a make an awful noise. But it's not going to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to kill you. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, I guess you know you, you get you think if you you've acquired the basic knowledge of of how to do something, but the conditions may change, and, and the the difficulty may scale up, and those initial conditions you had don't quite apply, and you might you might need some new tricks to sort of get there um yeah that way but I, I can't think of a very specific example <laughs> okay so uh, before we wrap up here is there anything additional that you'd like to uh talk about that we haven't gotten to no i mean there, you know, there's some things that i i didn't quite cover as much that I'm, I'm getting into a little bit now such as the idea of i mean it's it's implicit in the book but the idea of of learning things with your children 
as a novice. I find it's a very interesting and, and sort of powerful experience that when I asked uh, actually people like Alison Gopnik, do you, do you know of any research about this? I mean, it just, and she said, no, you know, it's, it's sort of, and when I tried to find information myself about even the idea of, of sort of co-learning or whatever it is you call it, learning something with your children, I, I just, there's not a huge school of, of thought out there about this. You find a lot of information about how to make your child a better, better learner, how to, how to encourage learning in your child, but adults are sort of written out of that equation. And, and I mean, the one thing I could come up with is, is the Suzuki, the famous Suzuki school of music instruction, which, you know, the parent is expected to learn at the same time, piano or, or, or cello to serve, you know, sort of as a positive role model and to also gain a bit of empathy for what the child is going through as a beginner, rather than just being that sort of impatient parent yelling on the sidelines, you know, to, you know, yelling at the soccer team to, to get better or something when, when the parent doesn't even play soccer themselves. So I, I don't know, this is sort of just a personal project of mine that, you know, kind of relates to the whole idea of, of how much more important I think parents and family are in the educational process than, than formal schooling, but something that we often uh, neglect, I think. Um, and otherwise I'm just, yeah, I'm open to other new skills that I should try to learn if, if you're, if you guys are, uh, fond of anything in particular well i'm well, so, well i i i think i'm now convinced by um your idea of drawing because uh, it has a lot of appeal to me now after your description of it um is there anything that you're thinking of picking up next well I, thinking of drawing I, w- I would love to do sculpture to sort of you know work work back to the, the three-dimensional media and, and sort of see how that process goes and n- now i'm wondering if there's some you know some kind of transcranial direct stimulation or something I can do that would actually <laughs> would help help with that process. But we can look into um, that. But that then that, that and that would actually be a great avenue for future research. I know I know the research is still very novel here as is the technology, I suppose, but but there have been some selective gains cited in in performance and learning as I've seen, would that, would that be correct? Do you think to, to say that with, uh, with transcranial magnetic stimulation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we've seen, I mean, we've, we've actually talked about some of that stuff on this show and we've, uh, there's some increases in learning with, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, the, basically the ones that are like hooking a nine volt battery up to your brain. Mm -hmm. Um, there seem, you know, I'm, I'm still a little hesitant to do it myself, but, um, there seem to be some effects that that are positive. I don't know if the jury's a hundred percent in yet. Yeah, no. I mean, there's, there's, there's. It's an ongoing area of of research and a lot of interesting stuff going on there for sure. Um, I'm not doing it myself. Yeah, so that speaks to, <laughs> I guess, wow, where I where I land on it. Okay. Well, uh, Tom Vanderbilt, thank you so much for being with us today. Really enjoyed this conversation. And again. The new book is Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to reach us, you can email us at cognationpodcast at gmail.com.